Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. We've talked before on GEMCAST about falls and how they are really multifactorial syndromes. There's a lot of things that go into causing repeated falls in older patients. But then the next question I'm always asked is, well, what can I do in the ED in real life, not in some ideal perfect state where I have, you know, one patient every three hours, but what can I do in a busy ED to help these patients? Here to talk more about that is Dr. Liz Goldberg. She is at Brown University, where she's an associate professor of emergency medicine and health services. Her research is in prevention of falls, and she's done a lot of really cool work. So Liz, welcome to GEMCAST. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm delighted to be here. I feel like you are just the real deal when it comes to falls. When I think about falls, <laughs> I think about Liz Goldberg. And in fact, uh, Liz and I had the opportunity to be on a CDC consulting panel or group together to talk about specifically falls, which is her realm, and then alcohol use in older adults, which is what my research has been on in the past. So just to start us off, Liz, to get us on the same page, in case people have not been longtime GEMCAST listeners and heard me hit this multiple times before, but we in the emergency department, often we hear this term mechanical fall. What are some of the problems in your mindset about that? And how should we think about it instead? Thanks so much for this question. This is a pet peeve of mine. So yeah, we often talk about a mechanical fall, like it's an accident, it happens to all of us and really doesn't require more than a trauma workup, like a head to toe exam. But the truth is actually much more complicated for our older adults. Uh, falls are frequent in older adults for a, for a good reason. And geriatricians will tell you that falls are actually a red flag. So the person's either becoming frail, they're having a medication side effect, they have a new infection, they have vision concerns that haven't been addressed. So there's really a myriad of reasons why older adults have falls. And they're not like younger people who uh, tripped over something and had an accident. So it's best if we just don't use the term mechanical fall. And how often do falls actually cause serious injuries in this patient population? So one in four adults 65 and older fall each year and about one in five falls cause a serious injury. So they can cause head injuries or uh, lower extremity injuries, but serious enough that they need attention. So one in four patients over 65 falls and then about 20% of those cause a serious injury. So that's a huge number when we're thinking about it from a population standpoint. Now, whenever I talk with people about falls and I say, yeah, it's not just mechanics that causes this quote mechanical fall. It's the vision, it's the neuropathy, it's the chronic illness, the acute illness, the loss of reflexes, the loss of muscular tone, the osteopenia or osteoporosis. And then their next question after they look at me with a little bit of overwhelm in their face is, well, what can I possibly do? about all of these problems? What should I be thinking about? What questions should I be asking? That's a great question. And I think if you're already thinking about that, you know that falls are caused by many different reasons, just modifying your history taking so that you're actually addressing some of the possible reasons why that person had a fall 
really will give you a leg up over most of our workups. So for instance, some of the questions you might ask are, have you recently started any new medications? About 1.3 million ED visits occur each year for medication harms. And so anytime we see an older person, we should really be asking them about any new medications. And several medications cause falls, right? Benzodiazepines can cause falls. Anticholinergic medications can cause falls. They are on large doses of opiates and those are new medications that can cause falls. Another question that you might want to ask or that you can at least assess from the ambulance drivers or from your EMTs are what was the heart rate when the ambulance arrived and immediately after your fall? We often don't ask about bradycardia. And once the person is in the emergency department, they may no longer have abnormal vital signs, but what was it immediately after their fall? And finally, um, one of the really important questions is, do you feel safe in your home and, and addressing elder abuse? Because that's a common problem. About five to 10% of, uh, of older adults are victims of abuse. And if we don't ask, we won't, we won't find out. Wow. Okay. So three things right off the bat, let's go back and think about each of these three in a little more detail. So first, have you recently started any new medications? And you mentioned anticholinergics and benzodiazepines. If you find that there was a new medication, are you deprescribing it? Or are you kind of saying, Hey, follow up with your PCP about this? What's your practice and what medications are the ones that you might be tempted to deprescribed? Yeah. So as someone that is a geriatric emergency medicine expert, I'm pretty comfortable saying this medication is probably not helping you. Let's talk about the indications. I think that um, you should stop taking it um, and I would deprescribe de it, but I would say most emergency physicians and also primary care physicians are really hesitant to deprescribe medications that you might not feel comfortable in the ED taking someone off their medications because you don't necessarily know why it was started and what other alternatives have been tried. So at the very least, I would recommend that you talk to that patient and say, well, now that you've had a fall, uh, it looks like this medication may no longer be appropriate. I want you to address this with your primary care doctor. Or one of the things that we often see is that patients are on medications that are over the counter that they started themselves. If it's a medication like that, um, you should feel a lot more confident saying, you know, this is really not a safe medication for an older person like you. And now that you've had a fall, I'd like you to stop it. What are some examples of meds that you have found that people might be on that you would then recommend stopping? So one of the common medications are sleep medications that adults are taking PRN or occasionally. And if they're already taking it only every so often, you could recommend to them to stop it. Or in the case of some sleep medication, it might be that if it's a woman, that that dose is just too high for them and they're being overdosed. So you might want to recommend a more appropriate dose either together um, after consultation with your pharmacist or if you're comfortable doing that. Another medication that older folks often take on their own is, is Benadryl or another um, first generation antihistamine to help them sleep. That's a medication that you could advise them to stop because we know those medications cause confusion, urinary retention, falls, and generally are not safe for older persons. And then your second recommendation was looking into or asking what was the heart rate when the ambulance arrived at home? So what are you looking for and what do you do with that information? What if they were bradycardic or they were tachycardic or they were normocardic? Is that a word? <laughs> How do you use that information and what are you looking for? 
Yeah. So if they were bradycardic and they're on medications that actually reduce heart rate, one of the things that you should talk to them about is, you know, have you recently increased that medication? Have you recently lost a lot of weight? Maybe that medication is having a lot more impact. You know, do you have a cardiologist that you see? Are they aware that you're having these bradycardic episodes? And if it seems like they're, you know, persistently bradycardic in the emergency department and they're still having symptoms, you're most likely going to admit them and keep them on the monitor. If it looks like their bradycardia has resolved, they're still going to need some further referrals or work up for it on an outpatient basis, because if it's linked to falls, it might occur again. And if you haven't determined the cause, then it could be dangerous for them. And then your third point was asking whether the patient feels safe at home and trying to identify potential cases of elder abuse. When And you mentioned 5 to 10%. That is such a huge number of older adults who are victims of abuse. And it may not be physical abuse. It could sometimes be neglect or financial abuse. But when we're thinking specifically about falls or trauma, what are some of the tip-offs or things that should raise our antennae for this could potentially be a pattern of injury consistent with elder abuse? That's a great question. And we often talk about with kids that there's patterns of injuries that are concerning. It turns out with adults, there's also patterns of injuries that would be concerning for elder abuse. And one of our colleagues, Dr. Tony Rosen, did a study where he looked at patients that came in with falls compared to patients that actually were subjected to elder abuse. And what he found is that folks that have had elder abuse are much more likely to have maxillofacial, dental, and neck injuries. So 67% of the group of patients that had elder abuse in his study had these maxillofacial, dental, or neck injuries versus only 28% of those with unintentional falls. Also, elder abuse victims are less likely to have fractures or lower extremity injuries. So only 8% of the group of patients he studied with elder abuse had these lower extremity injuries. But those folks that had unintentional falls, 22% of them had lower extremity injuries. So we should think about it or be a little more concerned if there's maxillofacial or dental or neck injuries versus they come in with a hip fracture. That's more often the unintentional fall. So what can we do in the ED to prevent future falls? Let's say we have a, you know, 80 year old female who comes in after a non-sinkable fall and we've examined her, maybe we x-rayed her hip and haven't found any injuries or reasons, you know, to admit her to trauma at this point. What can we do to help her not fall in the future? I think a good place to start is with that history taking, like I already mentioned, what was the reason for the fall and discussing that with the patient, the things that you find. The second thing that you should do is really encourage them to follow up with their primary care doctors. Unfortunately, rates of follow-up after falls are pretty low and a lot of older adults forget about their falls or they don't think they're important, so they don't mention it. And that means that prevention opportunities are also missed. What about, and this is a shameless plug to go and read more about your papers, but you have done some amazing work in terms of the benefits of having physical therapy see patients in the ED. So what did you find in your study? And how does it help the patient? How does it help the physician? And how does it help prevent future visits for falls? Thank you so much, Christina, for that question. I was really fortunate to get NIH funding to design a new intervention for falls prevention in the emergency department, and we call it gap care. And gap care essentially brings together physical therapists and pharmacists 
to act as a team in the emergency department to see patients immediately after they come in for a fall and try to prevent future falls. So what happened in the gap care intervention is initially a pharmacist would come to the bedside of the patient, spend 20 minutes talking to the patient about their current medications and identify three things that that patient could change to make their medication regimen safer. And these could be really simple things like if they were taking a sedative antidepressant in the morning to take them at night instead so that they weren't so drowsy during the day and increasing their risk of falls. Sometimes those were harder things like tapering off benzodiazepines, but the pharmacists are professionals in that and can recommend a tapering schedule. And then next, after the pharmacist was at the bedside and did this motivational interviewing with the patient and then also often the caregiver that was there, then we had a physical therapist come in, meet with the patient and do gait testing with them and mobilization and figure out how, how were they walking? Did they have a balance problem? Did they have a lower extremity strength problem? And depending on how frail that older person was, they would recommend outpatient or home PT and sometimes even rehab immediately after the ED visit. We found that we were able to, with this PT and pharmacy consultation, that we were able to reduce six-month fall-related ED visits by 66%. So even though these consultations were really short, just 20 minutes at the bedside which with each professional, they had a really important long-term impact for that patient. That is incredible. Reducing six-month ED visits for fall by 66%, and then also all-cause ED visits by 53%. That's amazing, especially in an era where, you know, I say an era, but we've always wanted to keep patients at home safely and avoid the ED, avoid, you know, those costs, avoid potential infections or delirium. So it's, it's pretty remarkable to me that just by having that brief intervention in the ED with a, so you mentioned a pharmacist who will make three recommendations Mm -hmm. about how they change, how they taper, how they adjust the dosing or schedule of their medications. And you mentioned that they use a technique called brief motivational interviewing. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you use it in this context. That part of it is really important. So there's a whole field of pharmacy interventions called medication therapy management, and it's based in this motivational interviewing. So instead of sitting down with a patient saying, you're on these three terrible medications. We want you to stop these three medications. You actually sit down with the patient and you ask open-ended questions like, what do you know about the Xanax that you're on? Tell me what effect it has in your body. Would you be open to changing the way we administer that medication? So you're asking open-ended questions. You're really drawing in the patient to understand how much do they know about the medications, how resistant would they be to change? And if they're open to change, then you say, okay, this is my recommendation for you. And importantly, after that recommendation is made, you reinforce it. So you summarize what you had talked about and they write a note. And and what we did in our electronic health record is we automatically faxed that note that the pharmacist wrote and the physical therapist wrote to the primary care doctor. So the ED physician didn't actually have to change their care at all in the emergency department. That was an important part of making the intervention pragmatic. I love that you incorporated motivational interviewing into this. That's actually an area where a lot of research is done in, for example, drug and alcohol 
behavioral changes. And it's so important for getting buy-in, for assessing openness and readiness. And one of the techniques that's often used in the substance abuse and alcohol cessation is we might say to you, okay, patient, um, how ready on a scale of one to 10 are you to make a change? And maybe they'll say a five and you'll have them talk a little bit about that. Like for example, oh yeah, my friend or my aunt had a fall recently and it was after drinking alcohol. And so I am ready and motivated to quit. And then you would ask them, okay, you're at a five. That's great. Why is it a five and not a three? So that helps them kind of bring up and reinforce their own reasons for change rather than you sitting and lecturing them and saying, you need to change and do this and that. So that's a fantastic way to engage, assess their openness, incorporate their existing understanding, or, you know, potentially make corrections or have them be more open to change. And then for the physical therapy portion, so you mentioned gait, mobilization testing, and figuring out is this strength, is this balance, is it frailty, do they need assistive devices, do they need outpatient or home PT? What if you work at a place where you don't have access to physical therapy or even, or to a pharmacist, or maybe just after hours or on weekends, what can the busy ER doc do in that situation to at least get the basic information or key pieces that might be helpful? And that's really important. So you might not have physical therapy in the emergency department, and you might not even have access to it in inpatient, although one thing that you could do in the way that I started this intervention was actually meeting with our inpatient physical therapist and saying, hey, would you be open to coming down for occasional consults to the emergency department? And it turns out there was actually a lot of interest in doing that. If you can't do that, there's also a lot of community-based resources for fall prevention. So there's a lot of great evidence behind Tai Chi programs, for instance, and many senior centers or assisted living or nursing homes will offer these fall prevention programs on site so that folks don't actually have to find transportation to go there. The other thing that you can do is often work with your case managers to do a home safety assessment so they can send an RN or a physical therapist to the home to do that home safety assessment. And that's also really helpful because a lot of older folks have environmental hazards like pets or rugs or other things in their home that once those are removed, they're less likely to fall. So you mentioned a lot of fantastic things that we could do in the ED, but let's bring it down to our actual busy context. And one of the concerns that is frequently raised is, well, I don't have time or I am graded. One of my metrics that I'm graded on is throughput time or doc to disposition time. And won't it take a lot more time if I am waiting for a PT consult or trying to get, you know, coordination of care or case management or home health or pharmacist? Now, beyond just the fact that it's the right thing to do for the patient, within our busy context, how can we stay engaged and motivated with this when it's kind of adding additional steps? I completely hear that. And we had to address a lot of those barriers at at our sites where we did this intervention, a lot of the questions were, why should we take this on too? But in our research, we actually found that we don't prolong ED length of stay when we have physical therapists and pharmacy professionals come to the ED to help us with older adults. And that's because it really turns out that older adults often spend a long time in the emergency department because their disposition is so unclear. 
Um, I'm sure you can imagine this when you were a, a resident on the trauma service and we're seeing one fall after the next and really didn't have time often to go back and ask them, you know, why exactly did you fall and what's your, what's your home living situation? Turns out physical therapists are really great at that disposition planning. They'll, they'll walk the patient for you. They'll point out what kind of resources they need. And I think most ED docs feel better discharging these patients if they know that we've gotten to the bottom of why they fell and there's a good plan in place for their care over the next several weeks. The other thing is falls are just a really costly problem for taxpayers. Falls cost Medicare 52 billion in 2020. And those costs really aren't sustainable. The population is aging. So we need to start talking about fall prevention more in the emergency department. And I'm really optimistic that this is something that we can do that our payers will start to embrace. And if we can keep more people at home outside of the emergency department and we can free up valuable nursing home care for those that need it most, that's a, that's a really good outcome to reach in the end. So let's say we're in the scenario where, okay, we've bought in, we wanna do these interventions in the ED, we wanna do a good assessment, do right by the patient, but we don't have physical therapy and maybe we don't have great outpatient coordination of services. What is kind of the minimum assessment that we should be doing in the ED? Should we be just walking the patients? Should we be doing a get up and go timed test? What would you recommend the doc out in you know, a random community or academic site do if they don't have physical therapy in-house? Yes, I think gait testing is really super important. We did the timed up and go which involves having an older person get up from a seated chair, walk 10 feet, and then turn around. And you can time how long that takes. Essentially, if it takes them longer than 13 seconds, we know that those are folks that are at high risk of falling again. And just watching an older person walk is so valuable. So if you see them have really tiny steps and they have they're really slow to rotate. You might think, oh, this is someone with Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's is a, just a huge risk factor for falls. So they can be referred appropriately to neurology, or you can advise them to talk to their primary care doctor. Another thing that you might notice when they walk is that they actually have a lot of pain in their hip because we know that they're occult hip fractures. We could have missed a hip fracture on x-ray. So that gives you a lot of important information make sure that the patient doesn't become a bounce back. You can also see how they're walking and if they're holding onto the walls as they're trying to, to walk their 10 feet, that might give you some information that that person really needs a walker. And then if you can adjust it for them even better, because it turns out a lot of people use their assistive devices the wrong way. And what also I'll, I'll recommend if you ever have any downtime in the emergency department and you can talk to physical therapists, have them teach you a little bit about walkers and how to correctly adjust walkers for older people. I did not realize I was doing it wrong for years, but just that teaching would go a really long way. Well, Liz, you have given us a lot of great ideas. And to kind of summarize here, we're talking about the problem of frequent falls in the ED. And you gave us three simple questions to ask the patients. One, have you started any new medications recently? Or more broadly, looking at their medication lists and seeing if there are high-risk meds. Two, looking at what was the heart rate when, when EMS arrived. And third, thinking about safety and elder abuse. And then your intervention, the GAP, care with a pharmacist looking to make recommendations using brief motivational interviewing to reduce high-risk medications or adjust dosing strategies. And then second, with physical therapy to look at 
what is the underlying issue? Is it pain? Is it balance? Is it strength? Is it frailty? And how can we address those? How can we get them the assistive devices that they need or further PT? And if you don't have those services in your shop, then at the very least, looking and asking, looking at their medication list and asking about changes. And if you don't feel comfortable making uh, you know, changes that might be pretty obvious, say they just started a sleeping aid or re then referring them to their PCB to make changes. And then if you can't do a full PT eval, then at least having the patient get up and walk, looking at, are they furniture surfing? Are they taking really wide based, small steps? Do they have a tremor? Could this be Parkinson's disease? Is this pain related that they're favoring one leg? And that can give us a lot of information about whether the patient is safe to go home and ultimately, your intervention reduced six-month ED visits for falls by 66%, which is huge. So looking at that from a population standpoint, this is something that I would encourage all of us to get behind as we are creating our pathways. This is not a problem you can solve at 2 a.m. You can't like call up PT and make an agreement that you come to the ED at 2 a.m. because they're not there. But during daytime hours, getting your pharmacists, getting your physical therapists in the room together, talking about how can we create a quick pathway to address patients with high-risk falls to hopefully prevent future falls. Liz, anything else you want to leave the audience with? No, other than that your work is important and I appreciate that you're listening to, to the patient to have them tell you exactly what's hurting them or why they think that they've had a fall. And even thinking about preventing falls is a really big step ahead. So thanks. Thanks so much, Liz. It's been great having you on the podcast and until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.